0: Welcome back to another mTOR You Know episode. My name is Lauren Schumacher. I will be one of your hosts today along with John Lyons. And as you can guess from the title, we are going to be talking about the board-certified transplant pharmacist exam, better known as BCTXP. Joining us today is Dr. Heather Johnson and Dr. Mary Lake. Heather Johnson is an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy and clinical pharmacist practicing in abdominal transplantation, primarily liver transplant, at UPMC Presbyterian, where she's also currently director of the PGY-1 Pharmacy Residency Program. Heather received her PharmD at the University of Minnesota College of Pharmacy, Twin Cities, and completed a clinical fellowship in renal transplant pharmacotherapy at Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis before joining the University of Pittsburgh. While at UPMC, she has practiced in both cardiothoracic and abdominal transplant and in both the inpatient and ambulatory setting. And she's developed a pharmacy service at the Mediterranean Institute for Highly Specialized Therapies in Palermo, Italy, and was the inaugural program director for the PGY2 solid organ transplant program at UPMC Presbyterian. Notably, especially for our podcast today, she was appointed to the BCTXV Specialty Council in 2018 and our other guest, Dr. Mary Like. Mary is the Pharmacist Program Coordinator for Solid Organ Transplant and Nebraska Medicine with a primary practice area of adult liver transplant. She's also a clinical assistant professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center College of Pharmacy. She received her doctor of pharmacy from the University of Nebraska Medical Center and completed her PGY-1 pharmacy practice and PGY-2 solid organ transplant residencies at Duke University Hospital. She's an active member of ACCP Immunology Transplantation PRN and AST Transplant Pharmacy Community of Practice. And for her role with BCTXP, she was appointed to the BCTXP Specialty Council in 2022 following attaining board certification and currently serves as the vice chair of the BCTXP Specialty Council. Now, the solid organ transplant board certification exam was approved in 2018, and we ultimately saw the first exam in fall 2021. But I was pretty intrigued learning about BPS history preparing for this podcast, and that's what I wanted to share with you all a bit. Now, believe it or not, BPS has really been around since the 70s, starting with the APHA House of Delegates in 1971, adopting a policy statement which created the Task Force on Specialties, um, which essentially provided structure in recognizing pharmacy specialties and certification of specialists. Um, this went on to establishing BPS as an autonomous division of APHA and the APHA bylaws in 1976, and from there we started to see all the different specialties. Starting with nuclear pharmacy in 1978, nutrition support and pharmacotherapy in the 80s, psychiatry, oncology in the 90s, and then the 2000s we saw really everything else, starting with AM care, to crit care, cardiology and, of course, solid organ transplant in 2018. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the MTOR You Know podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about BCTXP. BPS has existed for quite a while and of course, transplant follows followed suit, which I know has caused a variety of of emotions within the transplant world, but we are not here today to discuss the emotions. Disclaimer, we are not here to give away test answers or questions or content, study material, etc. We are here to talk about how the exam came to be. Um, We're going to talk with some awesome individuals who were part of the exam, um, creating content and are on the Specialty Advisory Council um, and to learn a little bit more about it today. Here with me today as my co-host, I have John Lyons. John, say hi and tell us about your experience with BCTXP.
1: Hey everybody, this is John. Um, So my experience with BCTXP was was probably pretty similar to um, many many of the the colleagues around the country in terms of dealing with the the first one. Um, We didn't know what to expect. Uh, We had our study materials. We studied our our behinds off, um, but we really came in having no idea what to expect, what the content was going to be like. Um, I was pleasantly surprised. I walked out of the exam probably thinking, "There's no way I passed this," uh, and wow, there's there's a lot of stuff on here, and man, I'm not as great as I think I am. Um, and uh, and then <laughs> and uh, and uh, and. Was humbled, let's just put it that way. Walking out of the exam, I was very humbled in terms of uh the, the breadth of information that's covered on the BCTXP. Um I lucked out and passed um, and have been really encouraging all of my uh colleagues at, at here at Loyola and Chicago um to be to get certified and, and get BCTXP. Um I think it's something that that has definitely been invaluable to as, as a nice. Um, way for our team to kind of you know continue with lifelong learning and show you know, kind of show what our training and reflect what what our training has has been in the past. Um, and so you know I've been a, a huge supporter of it uh, since since the beginning.
0: You know, it was humbling though. it was a humbling yeah. test. Um, but I don't want to waste any more time without introducing our special guest today. Um, so we have Dr. Heather
2: Johnson and Dr. Mary like with us. I'm Heather Johnson. I am currently an abdominal transplant pharmacist, mostly liver, um, at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, our Presbyterian campus. And I am probably the only person on this call who has not taken the board certification exam because I've been on the council since 2018. And as a member of the council, I won't be able to take the exam until two years after I come off the council. Um, So I have not had the the joy yet of, of actually sitting for that exam. I think that's probably something that at this point makes me unique. I love data. And so I went to try to find the data that I could from the BPS site and from the ACCP site. And there are currently 255 pharmacists who have the board, the transplant board certification. 104 of the last 205 passed the, passed the last exam. If you look at the number of members of the immunology transplant PRN, the ACCP's website says there are 515 members of the transplant PRN, but 81 of those are students and 50 of those are residents. So that leaves 384 pharmacist members of the PRN, which means that more than two-thirds of, possibly more than two-thirds of the ACCP transplant pharmacist PRN have gotten that board certification. So I think we're up there if we if we think that ACCP captures a lot of the... Um, transplant pharmacists out there. So we're well on our way to really saturating the transplant pharmacy field with board certified um, practitioners. And I know in my own institution, we're developing a a CNI dosing pharmacy to dose protocol. And one of our criteria for being able to kind of pass the, the credentialing for that is either to be transplant board certified, or have certain number of years of experience. So we've decided as an institution or as a pharmacy department to use board certification to be one of our markers for um, capability of performing some high-level function.
0: All right, thank you. But I had no idea that's the, that was the reason you weren't uh, certified yet, Heather. I figured there was an ex- like a reason, <laughs> but <laughs> that explains it. All right, so the other
3: host I'm very excited for today, Dr. Mary Like. I'm Mary Like, and I am the Solid Organ Transplant Pharmacist Program Coordinator at Nebraska Medicine, which is just a fancy way of saying I help oversee the transplant pharmacy programs here. Um, My specialty area is adult liver transplant, so that's where I practice every day. And I was, like John, one of the first people to take the um, board certification, but I was a few years out of residency. So I definitely had to pull back on my cardiothoracic knowledge from when I was a resident at Duke closing in on 10 years ago. So that was fun. Um, but currently I sit on as the vice chair of the council and I was really excited about BC Pay because I think that there's such an opportunity to get that credentialing and get the ability to show what we can do as um, pharmacists and to level the game up. So I think that that's something that I'm really proud of as being a transplant pharmacist is we can um, do so much for our team, collaborate with our physicians and a lot of them empower us I and mean, we work with a lot of surgeons and I feel like they're often handing us the medical needs um, on a daily basis. And I think to be able to show that, hey, I know what I'm doing from a kind of global standpoint was really something I was proud of.
1: I will say very recently I, I had to do education with a, a patient who was a physician and her daughter who was a physician. And I felt very proud telling both of them about my credentials because they asked me about them and you know, being being able to tell them that I was a board certified transplant pharmacist. Like I I don't see it as much. I don't see it as a a feather in your cap at all. I mean, this is really just kind of, you know, putting putting your your uh, your money where your mouth is in terms of knowing what you're doing, uh, really having that knowledge base and having that expertise. And really, it helps. Honestly, it's the patients that have asked about my credentials, has really helped their trust um, in me as their transplant pharmacist. Um, now, getting over, so switching over uh, to kind of the the transplant council, the BCTXP council. Um, I guess one one question that we you know as a group had for both of you was you know what uh, what was your motivation, what was your inspiration for getting involved um, in the BCTXP council? Um, Mary, do you want to start with us?
3: Yeah. Um, so I, unlike Heather, had already taken the exam and so was offered the opportunity to apply as one of the first kind of board certified transplant pharmacists to join the council. And I wanted to be involved just to help continuing to elevate and develop the standards that we would be, um, for transplant pharmacy in the future and continue to elevate that role. Um, I knew, uh, I already had board certification in pharmacotherapy and now having it in transplant pharmacy, I wanted to be able to, you know, move that forward and make sure that pharmacy stays on the cutting edge of what we're doing. And the previous and the current um, council before I joined had done such an amazing job of creating a broad content outline and a very challenging exam. And I was wanting to be able to be part of that and to continue to you know contribute to the transplant um, front on a global state.
1: Probably should have started with Heather, but sorry about that. So, so what what inspired you to to get involved and and uh, put you know uh, foregoing your ability to take the test for so long?
2: <laughs> now, I can't take the test, so I don't have to study for the test, um, and that's something that I kind of is sometimes kind of relax relaxing when everybody else around here was studying. Um, but I think that one thing that I realized um, when the calls for you know, that the content outline for the for the exam came from the initial role delineation study. So there was a committee of pharmacists, BPS put out a call for people to would you like to be involved in the role role delineation study? And I um clicked no on all those emails because I actually didn't believe in the specialty exam for pharmacists. I didn't believe in any specialty exams at all. I thought they were going down the wrong path, and I was gonna stand on that on that principle of like this is not the path to go on. Um and so the, after they decided they would have it, I said, "Well, if you can't beat them, you have to you have to join them and you have to help, you know, forge the the content and forge the exam, make sure that it's broad enough, make sure that it covers a broad scope of things. and and really, the exam development starts with starts with the content outline that's provided by the rule delineation study. And that role gets reviewed every so many years. And recently, a large number of people, Um, Transital pharmacists were involved in that kind of job analysis studies. That That actually helps develop a new or revises the content outline. So the content outline comes from actual practitioners stating, what do we do in our day and what knowledge is important for us? But moreover, you know, the calls for these things come out, the calls for BPS, the calls for ACCP, and you look at the people who are doing those things and you think, well, well, why are they doing those things? All those people are doing those things because they volunteer and they say, I want to do those. And so anybody can volunteer. Now, only so many people are going to get selected, but not as many people volunteer for things as you think they do, or as you maybe think they do if you're a a new practitioner. And so people who have volunteered once didn't get selected, they volunteer again. And there are lots of opportunities to get involved. And I think for a lot of the things that we do, we could actually use more volunteers than I thought I want to, you know, why shouldn't I be part, i be part of that. And I think it's been a valuable experience and it was fun. You know, the initial group actually got to name the BCTXP. They wanted, people were like, well, we should be BCTP. And, and we were adamant that transplant is always TX. So we ought to have a T, we ought to have a TX in there. So I think it was, you know, fun because we as practitioners got to choose what the, what the credential, what the credential was. So it's been exciting to be part of it.
0: Yeah, Um, it it would feel wrong if it was TP. Sorry, Mary, go
3: ahead. Oh, I was just going to piggyback on that. I met with one of the psychometric um, analysts um, to kind of just go over like my experience with BCTXP. And he questioned me at length about what I thought about the BCTXP title. And I was like, oh, it's perfect. Everybody knows TXP. I was like, they knew what they were doing. And he was like, seriously? And I was like, yeah, I don't know what else it would have been. Like I would have been, I'm like proud to be BCTXP because of the TXP, I, TXP portion of it. So yeah, we so
2: couldn't so. we couldn't be TP because that would be toilet paper and that just was not no. going to happen. So it had to be TXP. No.
3: And I like Heather, I also thought like I wanted to be able to serve the community. So like I'd seen all these other people volunteer and you see all these people that you look up to um, from different organizations that you're involved with you see them on the specialty council and so i remember applying for the council thinking there's absolutely no way that i'm going to be selected to be on this because i'm sure that there's so many other volunteers and amazing pharmacists to get to do it and so it was just such an honor to be chosen um but if i would have let my fear get in the way i wouldn't have had the opportunity to jump in and help out
2: yeah So do you want to talk about council content, like how the council gets formed or what the council look, what the council should look like? Yeah. 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 Really is, I think, a concerted effort to make sure it's balanced over a lot of factors. Geographically, um, organ wise, who does, who does what? Um, Practice areas, you know, you don't want any, you don't want too many people all in ambulatory. You don't want everybody just to be an inpatient. You want to cover in some respect, the pediatric, as well as kind of the more Academic or statistical or kind of practice management kind of thing. So, everybody on the council should bring, you know, some sort of expertise. And yeah, we have overlapping expertise, but you really want a diverse group. Um, And that also goes to years in practice. You don't want everybody who's got 20 years in practice. You don't want everybody who's got zero to five years in practice. And so, you know, when they put out the call and when the new candidates get evaluated, they get evaluated in terms of how they fill holes or balance the the work, uh, the work, the council the, the that's existing or remaining with those people, with those members who are go, going off. So I think there's opportunity for all sorts of people at all levels of their, 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 their practice. Perfect.
0: Heather, you talked a little bit about um, how the content outline was developed from this role delineation study. Uh, I remember the first time I looked at the content outline and I'm like, I think they have to hit on literally every single thing that could ever be possible within the realm of transplant. Like, I'm pretty sure they have to do that. And that's literally what it was. Uh, But when the content outline was being created to be posted on the BPS website, can you chime in a little bit about like what that was like creating that and how you work together to create something so comprehensive?
2: The reality is, is that I wasn't involved in the initial role delineation study. And so the initial council had to take what the role delineation study came up with and and we're supposed to follow, these are the percentages of time we spend in this. So these are the percentages of questions that ought to go to that. Now, what we kind of surmised was that there were a lot of really experienced people who were very advanced in their careers who were on the initial role delineation study. And so the council actually felt that there was Maybe a little bit too heavy on the administrative side. So we pushed to actually rebalance it to have more, more content on the clinical side. And that actually came out in the second job analysis. And so you have to look at, that's why it's important in the job analysis. And now those surveys that BPS send to everybody, tell us what you do during your day. What percentage of your day is this? That's where that job analysis stuff comes from. It initially comes from the responses of pharmacists. And if pharmacists don't respond, the, the job analysis group, and Mary was on that group, does, doesn't have anything to work to work with. Um, so that's where it comes from. It comes from practitioners. And then with that, we have to take
3: what those, you know, all the content that we've developed and said, and then, then you apply that percentage of the exam. And I just remember there would be a couple of times where we're looking at that and we're like, this doesn't really show what we're doing. And we I don't want to put so many questions on this. Section And I think, you know, as Heather said, I think it's really important that people fill out those surveys because otherwise you only have one, you know, type of pharmacist filling them out and then that's going to be what you get tested on. But really, we want that global perspective of what does it mean to be a transplant pharmacist? And I think that
1: content outline is the goal. I think I have a newfound appreciation for for making sure that I'm keeping up with the the CLP and PRN um, surveys that come out because you know it seems like it's it's funny even from hearing all of this from both of y'all I'm like getting the uh you know hearing about how there was a lot of administrative pull in the in kind of initial you know material and you guys are like fighting the good fight of like no this is for transplant for, for transplant pharmacists by transplant pharmacists so just uh I mean at least personally like just a completely new found um appreciation for that now what what is the like I guess next steps then so we have our, our content outlined from the role delineation study now kind of what what went into you know picking people that developed the exam materials you know the study materials and things like that I'm I'm a little cloudy as in terms of how that whole process works so I was hoping you guys would be able to fill in some gaps yeah you're, you're talking to the uh the the blind right now in terms of understanding all of this process
2: the exam and the study materials are completely separate. And that is something that people probably don't recognize. BPS develops the exam. They put out a call for people to be kind of providers of continuing professional development, so recertification stuff. But the groups that develop these review materials, the study materials, they have no affiliation with BPS. They have not seen the exam. They're not like licensed by BPS to develop that. So when you do the exam materials, you're like, this isn't, wasn't on the exam or this wasn't, they're completely, they're completely separate. They're completely separate. And, um, I think that a lot of people don't, don't realize that all of the exam prepares are all the the exam study material people have is the, the content outline. And, and likewise, if you've written part, if you've written for the exam and you're on the, on the, um counsel, you're not you're you're prohibited by confidentiality agreements from writing exam preparation material because you know too much so there's a lot that's done to kind of keep the exam a, a good exam and keep the quality high and keep it true to the exam I think is the best way to say it um but people don't know that that there's like should be like it's I think it's, it is written places but it's completely separate <laughs>
1: Call me ignorant, or I like to call it blissfully unaware, but my mind is absolutely blown right right now. I had no idea. <laughs> so hopefully for our listeners out there, this uh, this really puts everything into perspective as they're looking over the study materials and, and taking the exam and everything. Like and I think
3: that. that goes to show like the importance of that content outline. I think if we write a good content outline, the study materials should be able to create an exam like that, those materials that someone taking the exam should be able to, use effectively, um, because, you know, as item writers or the special counsel, we're not trying to make up medicine. We're not trying to make up new things. We're trying to test the knowledge of transplant pharmacists. And so if that content outline is on point and they use that for developing the study materials, it should prepare you for the exam. But again, there's no correlations. Nonetheless, bravo to everyone that
0: created those modules for ASHP. Uh, I can speak for myself. I was a fairly new practitioner. So I actually learned some things and I still have notes um, from some of those individuals, especially
3: the pediatric session. <laughs> I mean, for nightly walks with my dog and we would listen to the podcast. And then when I'd get to something that I was like, "Whoa, what's that? And I scroll on my phone and see and watch, look at the slides. But it was just a nice review of everything I learned during residency and probably then some.
0: Yeah, and it was Maya who did immunology, right? And her immunology was like, Oh boy, I, I I felt a little embarrassed to be in transplant and not know immunology the and speak immunology the way she did. It was pretty compelling actually. That um, was just a fond memory of when one of my coworkers and I were studying. We're like, do we need to know this to this detail? Because this is this is not this is not us. But going back to the topic at hand, so you got the content outline. How on earth do you turn this? into multiple choice one correct answer test questions. When there are so many gray areas and places that we can't even really agree on, how do you guys go about
2: making test questions especially
0: for some of those gray clinical areas?
2: This is the hard question. So, um I think you test to the knowledge that's necessary. You test to the to the knowledge domains and, you know, if it's a drug and you know the drug's important in tra- in transplant we can't test. We can't test dosing. We can't test lots of kind of crazy specific things. But we can test things that are well known. Things that are that everybody should know. You know, everybody should know the side effects of, of the drugs we're testing. Everybody should know, you know, how they how they how they work. And so you test. I think to the knowledge to the knowledge domains that are that are important. And and I think those things are 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 consistent. But I would say that anybody who volunteers to write exam questions. And that's another thing. Anybody can volunteer to write exam questions. There's always calls to, do you want to be an exam question writer? And the way you write an exam question may not be the same, may not be, your question may not show up on the exam, but some iteration or some idea of it may, may show up on the exam. But anybody can be an, an exam question writer because a certain percentage of the questions do come from ideas from the exam question writers. They don't all come from um, the work of the work of the council. And anybody who volunteers to be an exam question writer there are tutorials that be that be um BPS provides for writing good exam questions and what to think about in terms of what writing distractors and and structuring questions and and those are good skills to have even if you even if you aren't really planning on being say a pharmacy educator or or um an educator you know a formal educator in general it helps you kind of ask students questions better it helps you um, formulate what you want to get out of something and know what your endpoint is, and so I inc- also encourage anybody who listens to the podcast who want, wants an opportunity. There are lots of opportunities to to write to write questions. There are opportunities to write questions for for the board certification exams. There are opportunities to write questions for even ACCP and review materials. I know many many years ago I wrote some questions for unrelated content for ACCP for one of their I think review review tests. So those are good good thing good skills to have and good ways to contribute good ways to contribute.
3: And I would agree with a lot of that. So I started as an item writer. So that's where I got my in to be, BCPXP was as an item writer. And so I am also a clinical faculty at the College of Pharmacy here at Nebraska. And I write exam questions for students and writing for the exam was a very, is a shift because when I write for students, right, I have a lecture, I have my slides, I just pull from my slides. And then I'm like, it's verbatim for my slides, kids. Like you can do this. I know you can't. Like, um, but when you're writing this, you're like, I don't have lecture slides. I don't have the ACCP you know, study materials that I can pull from slide 54 to write the test question. Right. So I am, I think for when I look at this, it's thinking of like, do I have a reference material that would justify the the choice that I'm making? Um, is this something I've experienced in practice that I think would be applicable to everybody. And I think in general, trying not to overcomplicate it with, oh, this dose is correct or that dose is correct. And thinking more kind of the bigger picture of, you know, what they actually need to know or what we want transplant pharmacists to know, I think is how I write items. And then I think also foils become, distractors become more important. I actually went into the exam to take it thinking it was going to be super easy because I thought the questions would be all really easy because, I, because of this, because I thought there's so many gray. I'm like, I know the bold, I know the big, but you actually have to write a better question because you're testing intelligent people who are focused in this area. And so it has to be a little bit more, you know, thoughtful in the stem, thoughtful in the foils. Um, But again, trying to get the the bigger picture because you don't and then having a reference to me is always key. And and we find this on when we're reviewing items is if I don't have a reference for it, you can you can hear the council kind of be like, well, I would maybe do that and I would do this. And so then we have a reference. You can say, like, this is justified in a reference so I can stand behind it versus, oh, this is just my center's practice or this is what I would do.
1: So did the council have, have a lot of moments like that? I guess, you know, as you were going through that process, you know, were, were there any like kind of heated moments between everybody and like, you know, unanticipated challenges as this was being developed that maybe you didn't expect um, when you when you signed up for the gig, so to speak, or, or applied to the gig?
2: Moments, probably not. But like Mary said, you know, somebody comes up with a question and you're like, oh, we would never do that. Like, where does that come, where does that come from? So it makes you question your own practice. Like, am I, am I completely off base or, you know, am I coming out of, you know, left field Um, or what is the, you know, what is the, the literature that stands behind, you know, things that are really specific and, and being clear about that. And it, it is, it is hard to write good questions. And I find that question writing is really a good group activity. You write a question by yourself because you kind of have an idea that you want to get out there and what is in the exam is never the question that you wrote it gets transformed a million times and and the question may get transformed into something that you didn't start with but there's one drug there's one idea there's one there's one interaction there's one adverse effect there's one complication that that is important and question writers find a way to to perfect that
3: and i think also we draw back onto that content outline is does this item go back to what we say the study is supposed to be focusing on. And if it's not, it's probably not a good question for the exam. And then it also makes it hard sometimes because you have administrative tasks and you're like, how do I write an administrative question? This is fun. Um, And so I think that's being an item writer, I think helps being in a group, helps none of these are solo questions that get written and thrown on the exam. And I think that's part of the beauty of it is that we get to work through them together I actually think that's my favorite part of being at the council is just the dialogue and it's fun. And it's just going to be around really smart people. And they challenge me to be a better practitioner and a better pharmacist. Um, I've met some of the, the coolest people as part of us on um, being on the council. And so it's always, I think about like, how did this happen? But it's, you know, just a privilege to be a part of it.
2: And then you like realize how easy it is to get kind of siloed in your own practice area. You know, I love my little liver land and I don't go above the diaphragm and, and, you know, you listen to the people who are on, you know, in another area and you're like, oh my gosh, there's so much about transplant that I have forgotten or that I've never learned because I haven't been there. And so, you know, to Lauren's comment earlier about when you want to take this, when you want to take this exam, I think you want to take it after residency. I think the unless you go into a practice where you're rotating across organs, you know, that's not every practice. You want to take it before you get too siloed into um, into a practice where you're kind of only in one or two organs or, one or you know, only a couple areas because it is so easy to forget those other things going down the road. So I would say, you know, PGY-2s, finish your PGY-2, take the exam. And I don't remember when, Mary might be able to, to highlight, remember, when the exam is probably going to go to a rolling exam window because the exam windows are going to change for a lot of these exams. And I couldn't find it on the BPS website when I was looking at it, but a lot of the exams are going to be going to rolling to rolling windows as opposed to just having those two kind of October and April periods.
3: I think transplant might be a couple years out from that. I know that we're switching content outlines. So the current con- content outline is the one that all the exams have been written on, but starting in spring of 2024, it will be the new content outline that's published on the BPS website that you can go to, but that's a... A changeover. I had one other thing comment I wanted yeah. to make about. Yeah. It. it was about the, you know, when you should take the exam. So I think PGY2s definitely take it right after you're, you're done with um, residency. But I know that we have people that have been practicing for years and they haven't, they're either PGY1 and they happened into transplant or they, you know, one of my colleagues has been a transplant pharmacist for 20, 30 years and he didn't do initial training. And I think so, then our center requires transplant pharmacists to have board certification um, within two years of um, eligibility to to practice in and round, And we just require board certification for any rounding pharmacist, regardless of your um, specialty area. And so he had to, you know, go and like learn about cardiothoracic transplant and he's never studied, he's never practiced. And I think actually these, you know, uh, these transplant pharmacists might actually have a harder time because you have to go back to something that maybe you've never actually practiced in. And so if you can get out of PGY2 year and go take it right away, I think you're going to do better off. I was pulling, you know, from seven years ago, my my heart transplant knowledge and lung transplant knowledge. And I think, you know, being able to help, you know, those that maybe don't have the same traditional training may be where, you know, those study resources can be very helpful um, with whether that's the ACCP or um, ASHP resources that'll come out.
0: So speaking of our PGY2s, this was an interesting uh, comment post by someone on the uh, MTOR You Know podcast group. The PGY2 training will vary a little bit from one institution for another uh, in the transplant world, right? We just have different populations. Um, The protocols are going to be a little bit different. Um, Should we be thinking about how to standardize our PGY2 training a little bit better to better set up our PGY-2 residents to take and pass BCTXP? Has that been something that's been discussed amongst the council?
2: Oh, we have nothing to do with residency training. So that goes to, that would go to ASHP and your PGY-2 PGY2 standard. Um, But really, I think a lot of things, and I haven't directly compared them, but each PGY-2 transplant included has that appendix, the appendix of topics and disease states. And I bet if you take that appendix and compare it to the content outline, I would venture to say that 99% of that is going to match to the content outline, because we know that not every transplant program is going to offer the same depth and breadth of, say, like various organs. Um, But, you know, and you may not see a patient with every single disease state. So when you go to the PGY2 appendix of of topics, you know, it asks, how did you cover this? Did you have a patient with this or did you, was it part of a discussion? Um, You know, I've actually never, ever seen a patient with parvovirus but I know a little bit about pyrovirus because it was on the list of things that I probably should learn something about um, in terms of in terms of transplant. But I think, you know, again, transplant is one of those things where there's lots of, um, lots of unicorns. And so we have to kind of learn about the unicorns. And I think that the PGY-2 appendix is a really good place, you know, to, to start. Again, I haven't directly compared them, but I think a lot of the stuff on the PGY-2 appendix lines up with the lines up with the content outline. Because the same kind of smart people who developed the did the job analysis were also same types of people who had were involved in the PGY2 de- um appendix development as well.
3: I bet a lot of PGY2 directors were sitting on the job analysis back yeah. in
2: the years. And, and we've actually as a council gone back in terms of the The content, I remember having conversations about the content outline and things and go, what does the PGY2 standard say? What does it say about the role of the pharmacist? So there's a lot of, they're not groups that work together, but there's a lot of linkage because it is all about practice. It's all about developing the practitioners and then assessing the practitioners. So it should kind of mirror one another, even though the groups are separate.
1: Yeah. I think personally as an, as an RPD um, it's, you know, I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, man, I really should be looking at, at the marriage between the two, but um you know i think i think a lot of program directors are definitely keeping keeping this in mind especially since you know the first round of exams you know people learn hey this is this is a this is a heck of an exam um and you know i think personally as a a program director i'm definitely going to be focusing on you know making sure that my residents can graduate and and are able to pass BCTXP with with relative ease but know it's one thing even though they're they're separate things they're definitely like you said they're definitely linked and and married to some some extent um now i guess in terms of you know kind of speaking of content you know what what is the process for you know reevaluating uh the exam reevaluating the content assessing that like how do you assess it and then kind of you know make changes based on that you know as part of the council
2: after every exam is, is done, I mean, every question is assessed and evaluated and reviewed by at the council level. And there's a lot of bodies that approve a question. A question is not approved by one or two pharmacists. The question is approved by the entire council. Um, but once the exam questions get to the exam and an exam has been issued and, and taken, you know, it goes through a lot of um Analysis in terms of how the question performed. How many people got it right? Did the people who got all the questions right get this question right? Similar to how we assess questions that we use in pharmacy schools and other places. I mean, and these people who are assessing the doing the the cycle met, the metrics on the exam are very are very smart people, um, in testing the performance of the questions. And then we also you know look at the comments that people left during left during the exam. But every question after the exam is issued gets evaluated for how it performed and was it a good was it a good question was it a bad question could it be a question that it was it that could be improved um and then simultaneously is this information still valid because we know that practice changes um one of the biggest areas of practice change that probably impacted a lot of exams that the board of pharmacy specialties administers is the change in the pneumococcal vaccine guidelines any exam that had recommendations for pneumonia vaccines, pneumococcal vaccines, in the BPS world had to be had to be changed, and that probably went to pediatrics, cardiology. Everywhere. So as practice changes, you have to then continually reevaluate those questions. And so Mary and I right now are reviewing two hundred and eight questions that were on, you know, that are available for utilization and looking at whether or not they're they're good questions, that there need to be tweaked, that they're still appropriate. Um, did something change? And also, you have to continually update exams because new drugs come out, new drugs, new utilizations, new new data. And so it's a continue. You can't just write an exam and be done with it. It's a Continual, continual process that um, is a lot more labor intensive than I ever I think anticipated. I don't think when I got on the council I realized how much exam question writing, evaluating, rewriting, reevaluating would be part of the, this this um, this role.
3: Yeah, Heather kind of hit most of the points I was going to talk about, but I think just in general the going back and reviewing a question and really looking at was, was this a good question. Did we ask it the right way? Did we Could it be written better, especially if it performed not as well as we'd like, but we like the content of it. Um, can this be just reworked in a way and all the feedback that we get, you know, gets seen and we can take that for what it's worth and assess kind of what we think about it. But I think that's, I've never realized how much I love data until I've written test questions and I get test questions back and I'm like, you know, 50% got this right but the high achievers got it right and the poor performers got it wrong. So I think it's a great question. Like, um, but I think that that's something that I appreciate about um, BC takes and BPS in general is just their willingness to go back to the drawing board and to reevaluate questions that maybe didn't perform as well as we would we thought they were going to perform. And again, your specialty council and the small picture of what the whole transplant community looks like. And so I think that that gives us some insight into how globally transplant pharmacists are practicing. And then um, I also think when we're writing test questions, if we know, you know, these guidelines are likely changing in three years, we put little notes, you know, that we know that we have to reevaluate, as Heather said. So um, we're not trying to keep old news, old news. We want to, you know, stay fresh and current with what's actually going on in practice. You know, I had
0: a feeling that this was a very well-oiled machine, the way that Everyone works together and everyone kind of fits into a piece of the puzzle with their expertise. Um, But I appreciate it so much more now that I get to learn about it from both of you. Um, All right, Mary, you mentioned that uh, the pharmacists at your center are board certified. A lot of transplant pharmacists prior to BCTXP were board certified through BCPS, right? Um, Some have added BCTXP on exchange, et cetera, what have you. I want to get both of your opinions, both you and uh, Heather, about the future opportunities for BCTXP. Of course, we can you know, leverage it uh, for collaborative practice agreements, things like tacrolimus dosing. But what else exists? Uh, how do we make the most of this, show the most for it, and you know, encourage transplant pharmacists to pursue BCTXP?
3: No, I think that I think credentialing, like you said, is probably one of the the major things that we utilize um, board certification for. I think it's an easy answer um, to share with our medical colleagues other than like experience, right? Like the first time I got a CPA, sat down with my hepatologist and I said, I want to do this for you. And he's like, oh, I don't know. And I was like, well, Dr., so and so, I've been working with you for so this long, and have I ever gone rogue on you? And he's like, okay, no. And so, and then all of a sudden now he's like, here, take this, take this, take this. But that came from like years of experience working with him um, to to build that rapport. And the as we add new people, it's nice to be able to demonstrate these people are board certified. I think that 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 terminology makes sense to our other. Uh, practitioners, the physicians we work with, to be a board-certified cardiologist, right? They have that understanding of what that entails, what that means, and so to say the same thing is that I'm a board-certified transplant pharmacist. I think it goes a long way to building a bridge, especially as you're new to a center or new to a location. And I think as you transition from one place to the next, and you know, I've been lucky enough to stay at the same institution since residency. Um, but you know, one day, you know, if I leave Nebraska and go somewhere else, it'll be able to say. I'm a board-certified transplant pharmacist, and maybe the area I practice isn't liver anymore. Maybe it's a different one, but I can say that I have that knowledge. I think that'll be a great bridge for me moving forward. And then I think having the certification also encourages me for that lifelong learning um, with the CE requirements and some of the newer requirements that are going to include professional development that um, you'll be, whether you're publishing or attending or presenting at meetings, those things will help. You know, count towards your um, recertification in the future, so that continual professional development um, will be piloted here out this next for those that get credentialing here this next year. And so, I think that shift will be just even more reason to demonstrate like what you're doing for um, the transplant community as a whole.
2: And I know that you know bodies look at you know the role of the the, the pharmacist and bodies look at what practitioners are important in transplant care. And you know, I don't know. You know where we're at those things those things evolve but I you know really do think that it's up to us to say who those pharmacists are that are the ones who should be taking care of transplant patients and I really do envision a time in which the the recommendation is that a pharmacist a board certified pharmacist take care of transplant patients um we have the credential we know what the credential is what the credential means it sets a baseline of what that knowledge and competency is for our people and so if we're looking at working with government entities if we're looking at the kinds of centers that CMS is going to uh, you know accredit in terms of in terms of transplant i do think that there's a time where they you know they come and they said let's look at your transplant CE for your people there's gonna come a time I think if we are able to influence it the right way where they say a certain percentage of your your pharmacists need to be board certified pharmacists. So as pharmacists, I think we want to define what that is. I don't think we want somebody else to define, you know, what that is. I think that some of the early UNOS iterations said somebody specializing in pharmacology, but didn't weren't willing to come right out and say it needs to be a pharmacist who you knows what the what the heck they're doing with regard to transplant. And we now having a credential can actually, um, when the time is right and when the body, you know, work with as a as a kind of a whole pharmacy community to place board-certified pharmacists in those in those positions. And I know that, I think, again, our medical colleagues understand what board certification is, and it gives them an opportunity to know that this new pharmacist coming in meets a certain criteria so they can be have confidence that that person coming in is going to be able to do the same thing that I have been able to do, even though they've known me for 20-odd 20, 20 years. Um, you know, I know that when I first got BCPS, it was a proud moment for myself because it validated a lot of the time that I'd been putting in, you know. But my medical colleagues like pointed it out. They're like, "Well, we have a board-certified pharmacist here. She's going to help you with your medications." And you know, they used it. They it was you know, they used that to validate you know our our role and our knowledge our knowledge. And I think that's something that that we should be be proud of. I mean, as I was an anti-board certification, an anti-transplant pharmacy um specialty at the, at the beginning, I really think that. It's the way that we, you know, level the playing field and say this is what it means to be a board-certified transplant pharmacist, and and the institutions will then say we want those kinds of people, we want to attract those kinds of people, and so therefore, you know, we should inc- again encourage all those PGY twos to go out and take the exam because it does it provides that validation that you have the basis, and and board certification, whether it's transplant or whether it's critical care, is a it may not feel like it when you take the exam. It's a minimal competency exam. It's not supposed to be designed to be taken by the person who has 25 years of experience and and can get into all the nitty gritty. It is. It's a minimal competent. It's a minimal competency exam, and it's not your driver's exam. But it's supposed to be able to be taken by somebody coming out of PGY two um, training or somebody who has three years of transplant experience under their belt.
1: That phrase minimal competency, I think after I walked out of that exam, that's when I said, you know what, for every, every, I don't even want to call this a standardized test, but, you know, for every like exam, say like the NAPLEX or something like that, I walked out and thought, this is minimal competency. You've got this. You did just fine. I walked out of BCTXP and I was like, this is minimal competency, the definition has changed, you know, and this is, I think it kind of goes back to, you know, kind of what you were saying about, you know, our medical colleagues understanding that board certification means something, you know, and so, you know, even though, yes, this is a minimal competency for a transplant, this is minimal competency for for a high-functioning, high-performing, you know, pharmacy specialty, and, you know, I think even just hearing everything that we've been talking about for, you know, the past 45, 50 minutes or so, is that, you know, the the passion that's gone into this, you know, this is this is more than than just some some minimal competency exam. And it's something that everybody who has taken it and passed it uh, for people that are about to take it and, and get certified like they should be very proud. Of of getting that certification. And, you know, I'm excited that this is about, you know, furthering the fields, doing more impactful things. And so even just over this last hour, I was like, wow, I was so narrow-minded thinking about the impact that this could have, um, you know, on our, on our field going forward.
0: All right. So I'm going to segue this into a different direction. Mayor, you had briefly mentioned um, what sounded like the future of continuing education. I think it's no secret to us that with board certification comes an extensive amount of continuing education and that is inherent to what it is and making sure you're up to date and you are at the top of your literature, top top of your game as a pharmacist. Um, Transplant field, very small. We have continuing education opportunities as they come out through our groups with ACCP, AST, etc. But is there going to be enough to fulfill all the CE credits that all of us are going to need. What is the future for making sure that we can all uh, continue uh, maintaining our BCTXP?
3: Well, part of the role of the council is to ensure that there's CE available. And so the ASHP and ACCP put forth um, interest in creating ce um that would be bps approved and so um that was something they proposed their plan that would be able to meet all the, the ce needs of um a bctx txp pharmacist and so um we reviewed their uh, proposal and that was something that has been approved and will be underway here i think in the next year and then, like I said, there is some changes to include more professional development, like just continuing professional development, where 80 units of your CE would come from your, you know, continuing education traditional kind of method. And then 20 of those CE um, units would come from other areas. And some of the final finality of the, what qualifies a unit, I think, is still underway. And it'll be piloted and rolled out based upon when you um completed and got um, board certification. So some of us early BCTXP people will have all of our hundred hour, you know, hundred units that we'll need to get from our, you know, straight um, BPS approved CE, but those that are done in 2024, they'll be able to do 20 units from presenting in a national meeting, publishing in a paper, precepting students. And those will qualify in a different way. Um, and you'll have to report those out. But Currently, right, our BCTXP, for those that took it early, we're having to do self-report for these first couple of years of things that apply to the content outline uh, because we didn't have the ACCP and the ASHP resource that we'll have um, in the coming years. But I'm I'm really looking forward to this uh, professional development process because I think it'll give us ways to leverage the things that we're already doing to continue to um, you know, show our worth as you know, our CE credits um, by doing the things that we do on a daily basis.
2: It's really a, a not a new way of looking at things. Um, different states have handled it differently. I know when I was, I'm licensed in Minnesota and licensed in Pennsylvania and Minnesota um, at least from what I remember, would recognize if I gave a presentation, I could get CE for developing and giving a presentation. But in Pennsylvania, I can't get CE for developing and giving a presentation, even though there's a lot more work and a lot more learning that oftentimes goes into that. So this kind of continuous professional development is going to incorporate a lot of, incorporate those kinds of things. So I think it's a, a good way of looking at it. And then BPS is basically harmonizing the requirements across specialties and putting together standards of how much um of that continue that CE part can can crosstalk between between um between specialties because it's very conceivable that there are some CE programs that do apply to 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 one or two specialties. And maybe want to make sure that um people who do hold dual dual certifications can use some overlap, but that it can't be all, all the same thing. Some of it does have to be specific to the ones to the one specialty or the other. Thank you.
0: That wraps up really majority or really all of the questions that I had. John, is there any queries you have?
3: The only thing I would say is that in the special council, you know, every year we're we're calling for members and we're calling for item writers and I think this is just a great opportunity for young practitioners or old practitioners alike to get involved with the council um, or get involved with item writing. If you didn't like the exam, get involved with item writing, get involved with the council. If you like the exam, get involved. Um, There's just so many opportunities to, to continue to set standards for what it means to be a transplant pharmacist and to take pride and ownership in what uh, we are in the future. And that's like one of the major reasons I got involved was because I wanted to be part of the story that's being written for us. And um, so come join us because, you know, it's fun and you get to see a different side of the development process.
1: Well, thank you all both so much. Um, You know, I I know I can speak for myself when I say, you know, from this last uh, hour or so, I have just such a newfound appreciation for all of the hard work that y'all, that the rest of the council um, has put towards this exam. I mean, honestly, as a BCTXP, like it makes me like that much more proud knowing everything that went into this exam. Um, I'm kind of inspired to, to get involved if I can ever figure out how to get my life together organization wise. But it's, it's something very inspiring, you know, and I hope that there are other pharmacists out there um, that um, wanna become item writers and everything like that. And with that being said, um, everybody go out, get your exams, and as Mary said, be a part of the story that's being written right now for our field.